The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One, two, three, Welcome to Main Street Vegan, a lively hour with host Victoria Moran, best-selling author and the OG of vegan living for over 40 years. She and her guests have got the goods to help you look and feel amazing, make a difference for animals, and discover the soulful side of the vegan journey. Now, here's Victoria. Do you like to cook? I mean, do you like it or love it or can't stand it? For me, it's so mixed. There was a time when I loved it. It was creative. It was an outlet. It was fun. And I have to say that in recent years, maybe because of being very, very busy with everything else, I just wish that six o'clock could come and somebody would have gotten dinner on the table. Well, maybe today we'll learn how that can happen. Maybe. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, and I am so happy to have you back for episode number 477 of the Main Street Vegan Podcast. We took a break and now we're back and I'm just so happy that you're here. And if you know other vegans or pregans or maybe people that used to listen and haven't known that we're back, just let them know because it is my complete solemn promise to you that we are going to have the best and the brightest in the vegan and plant-based universe talking about everything that is of interest to people who are vegan or people who are leaning in a vegan word direction. And one of the most important aspects of that is food. And in all honesty, it's the thing I think about the least. I'm not a foodie. I pretty much like any kind of vegan food that anybody gives me, but ah, there is the rub. People aren't giving me a whole lot of beautifully prepared pre-made food. If I want to get it, I have to make it myself. So today we have someone who knows how you and I can both do this, do it beautifully, do it healthfully, and even, that's what she says, enjoy doing it. She is Brigitte Jem. She is the priestess of batch cooking. What do you think about that? And she empowers others to take charge of their health and enjoy a gentler lifestyle with healthy vegan cooking. She believes that you need only five recipes to enjoy weeknight meals. And she is the author of a truly wonderful book. I found the book first, the author after. That book is called Flow in the Kitchen. And you know what? My husband will tell you. If I had not come upon this book, he might be getting order in Chinese way more nights than he would want it. Welcome, Brigitte. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be part of the new season of uh, Main Street Vegan. It's such a momentous opportunity. Thank you for having Uh, me. It feels kind of momentous. You know, you do something every week for a really long time. 
And then you don't do it for a while. And all of a sudden, you kind of see what it meant to people. So that's pretty special. And I thank you for that. And I also thank you for your wonderful book, Flow in the Kitchen, Practices for Healthy, Stress-Free Vegan Cooking. So if you looked at my bookshelf, you would say the last thing this woman needs on earth is another cookbook. What got me was the stress-free because none of the other ones say that. And this makes you really unique in, in the certainly the vegan culinary world and maybe the culinary world at large. So tell us how you got here. How did you get this amazing specialty? I have to admit that, you know, you were asking who loves to cook and I don't really like to cook and people who know me will go like, yeah, I don't believe that, you know, what are you trying to make me, you know, swallow here? But the, the truth is that like the vast majority of people who are kind of the primary cook in their household, when five, five thirty comes up in the evening, I'm not at all excited to get into the kitchen. And it's become, I think it was maybe more fun when, you know, either single living with roommates and going into, you know, when you have enough money that you have groceries, of course, because at the beginning when you're a student and you don't have much to eat it's not great but then you know you have a little bit more comfort and you can start exploring all of these cool different traditions of you know cooking um but then uh, what happens to me anyway is that i have a couple of children um life is busy there's all these different activities all the different people have personal preferences um i don't like the term picky but some people are very selective let's put it that way and every meal becomes a bit of a chore, a bit of a compromise, and there's a lot of stress involved. And I don't like that any more than the next person. I don't enjoy that. And frankly, there's a long list of things that I'd rather be doing. I love books. I love podcasts. Good thing is you can listen to podcasts when you cook to some extent. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But I, I love going outside for walks, for hikes. I love exercising, seeing friends, all those things that are not always um, happening at the same time as you're trying to cook. And what I'm trying to do with Flow in the Kitchen is convince people that cookbooks, because Flow in the Kitchen is not a cookbook, cookbooks are not required, recipes are not required once you understand what I call sometimes the grammar of cooking or the syntax, depending on your perspective. But basically, once you understand how different dishes are made, let's say soup or a stir fry or what I like to call roasted things, once you understand that, you don't need a recipe every single time. You need to have a well-stocked fridge, pantry, you know, some produce that you can use. And from there, you can improvise. And it will probably not be as flamboyant as a lot of the food that we see in cookbooks, you know, you open cookbooks and all the beautiful pictures and you're like, oh, I wish I could eat this all the time. Um, and I don't want to say people need to lower their expectations, but I think there's a bit of that. We've kind of ramped up our imagination about what is a dinner supposed to be like, you know, and Pinterest serves you all of these amazing images of, and it's, it's almost like food porn. And people say that in a light way, but I don't, I don't say it lightly because it does switch our perspective on what good food is supposed to look like and then when we can't exactly reproduce that in our own home kitchen because you know real life gets in the way we feel bad about ourselves but there is so much to love about a simple soup a simple stir fry that has all the necessary ingredients to be tasty and nutritious and I'm really hoping to give people the tools not just um, culinary tools but perhaps above all the mindset tools and the habits to make that a reality in their, in their home kitchen most days of the week. And actually, if not exactly enjoy it, feel satisfaction from it at the very least. You said so much that I needed to hear. And that's so interesting when you talk about Pinterest, et cetera, and making us feel bad about what we cook, because we're just getting out of the era 
where all the magazines and, and that made people feel bad about how they looked because <laughs> all the models had the same kind of body. And now we've got that with food. I guess it seems sometimes like you can't win, but um, we're finding ways with wonderful people like you that we can do some winning every single day. So you talk about good food. And I think that that's a term that is interpreted differently by different people. What's your definition of really good food? You might say I have high standards, um, but I would like food that I eat and food that I serve to my loved ones to do five main things. I wanted to promote good health. And that's because like our bodies, even old people like me, you know, that are done growing, but especially, of course, children, but also adults, our bodies are made from the molecules of the food we eat. That's not a little thing. And every bite that we eat can promote good health. There's no such thing, I guess, as a neutral bite. I, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, I eat vegan donuts once in a while, and I'm, I don't want to, you know, push around the idea of bad food. Uh, that's not the point. But really, there's food that we can all understand are better for us than others. And definitely vegetables, whole grain beans, those are things that we know promote good health. So I want that for myself and my family. I want the food to be kind to the planet. And that's where the really good part starts, right? The really, it's not just good for me, but it's good in the broader sense um, that it does not as much as possible, um, damage the planet more than we need to. And also that avoids unnecessary suffering. It is true that, that there's no way to grow food without killing bugs, you know, and to harvest food on a large scale to feed 8 billion humans without having some level of suffering in the animal realm and in the human realm as well. And we need to work towards improving that. But there's certainly a lot of unnecessary suffering that happens. And I'm talking specifically about animal agriculture here. Billions of beings, sentient beings that are abused and exploited in the world. And that is not necessary because we know that we actually can survive and even thrive on plant foods. So really wanting to avoid that. I like food, and that's where it gets extra really good food, to come from love. I don't mean to say that people who work in food factories or restaurants don't love us, uh, but they love us less than I love my family, right? They have other things to do. They're often treated really poorly, very unfortunately. And there's a Certainly some food producers out there that create food with love, but for the vast majority of food that's consumed that comes from, you know, ready-made industrial kinds of sources, it is not made with love. And there's a part of me, I'm not the most spiritual person, but I, I certainly believe that the energy we put in making the food comes across when we eat it. And so I want to feed my family food that's been made with love. And well, it has to taste good. You know, if if it fits all of the above categories, but it, it tastes awful, and that is very, of course, uh, personal and how we interpret it, but uh, it's not going to be something that we want to eat again. And so that's quite important as well. But all of this is aspirational because there's very few meals that I manage to eat or even make that thick all five boxes. There's some things for me that are not negotiable, it's very important for me that the food always be vegan, for example. Some people will be more flexible on that, but for me, that's that's non-negotiable. Um, I work really hard at uh, wanting to make the food nutritious, but once in a while, you know, my son has a vegan hot dog for lunch because that's really what he wants, and it makes him really happy. Is that the best nutritional choice for him? No, but it prevented some major meltdown at the lunch table, and everybody stayed happy. So it's all aspirational but it's something to keep on cooking towards. I love this. You've already made me like cooking more than I did 10 minutes ago. And I love what you said about having it come from love years ago. So we're talking, gosh, we moved to New York 23 years ago. So this would have been before that. 
we lived in Kansas City, Missouri, in a wonderful neighborhood, this neighborhood called Volker. And it had, and to this day, has lots of wonderful Mon Pa restaurants. And one is a Vietnamese restaurant called Saigon 39. The owner's name was Mimi. And she had all these soups on the menu. And none of them were vegan as they appeared on the menu, but she made one for us. And ultimately, it actually got on the menu. But she used to just make the soup for my daughter and me. And especially if one of us felt like we were coming down with something or getting a little bit run down, she would make this soup and we just called it Mimi's soup. And another friend back there in KC, wonderful, wonderful woman, wonderful massage therapist, Nisha Gamby, she would say, you know why that Mimi soup's so good? And I'm like, no. And I thought she was going to tell me some spices or something and then I could do it at home. She said, because that food is made with love and you can taste it. it it's a really fascinating thing that when you just kind of think about, you know, mom's home cooking and, oh gosh, my grandmother used to make whatever it was. It wasn't just whatever it was. It was that love she put into it. So thank you. And the state of mind with which we enter the kitchen and the cooking task makes a difference, right? If I make a meal and I'm angry, stressed, um, resentful, bitter, I, I think it comes across too, right? And as much as possible now, I make this effort when I walk into the kitchen, and often I still walk in the kitchen stressed and angry and who knows what, right? But I, I try to take a ten, even a 10-second breathing ritual, will make the difference in recentering me and focusing on the gratitude I have to even have a family to feed, you know, and I have, uh, I love the stoic approach to uh, reminding ourselves, you know, memento mori, remember you will die. And it's, it's, some people find it a little morbid, but the reality is that today we're together, who knows about tomorrow, let's make sure that we have really good food to eat and to enjoy together. And I, I get I don't have to, but I get to make that dinner. And once I have this little mindset shift, everything falls into place. And it's there's a lot more love flowing than when I enter the kitchen with upset and resentment. Wow. You are bringing back so many words of wisdom that wise people that I have known have said in the past. I'm thinking a wonderful sick friend, S-I-K-H, the uh, Indian religion. And she said that in that tradition, you were supposed to like look yourself over at the door of the kitchen and see what's going on with me. What's my attitude? How am I feeling about the people that are going to eat this food? How's my relationship with myself? And if it's not good, don't cook, leave, <laughs> go get yourself right and then come back and cook because this is not just some little thing that you do. This is a big deal. Cause like you said, those molecules are going to be making people. Absolutely. I love this. I will Stunning. look that up because it's such <laughs> a beautiful, a beautiful practice to add to my arsenal. I love it. Well, and I love talking to people who have arsenals of practices. So <laughs> tip for tat. So you talked a little bit, Brigitte, about cooking at home and the importance of cooking at home. And yet so many people struggle with it. So is it maybe a little bit like exercise? We know it's good, but we wish we didn't have to do it. And it's getting worse. Um, I've been following closely um, the stats about how many food dollars are spent at home uh, versus spent in outside food, um, you know, groceries versus restaurant or fully made meals. And in Canada, it's a little less pronounced, but in the United States now for at least a couple of years, there's been more food spending on outside food than on groceries. I was blown away. And at the same time, I'm not totally surprised because um, believe it or not, I've been working, um, I do a little bit of uh, one-on-one -on -one cooking education with people that really need remedial, you know, and I have this client who age, she's over 70 years old. She had never cooked rice 
by herself. She had bought ready-made rice her whole life, right? And I was like, wow. And she's a normal person. <laughs> she's not an alien or anything, you know? It's And I, I think there's a very strong movement pushing us away from the kitchen. And in the same way, and it's not a conspiracy, um, we're very willing, I think, uh, participants into that. But just like we've stopped growing our own food, a few generations ago as you know as a population some people still do it but for for the most part we don't now we've moved away from cooking our own food and that knowledge is at risk of being lost and it just takes a couple of generations right we you were mentioning the grandmother uh, well if you you see your grandmother cooking you have a chance of picking that up but once nor your grandmother nor your mother or your grandfather and your mother your grand your father have been cooking then where will the role models be? And I think we're in that place in history right now in, in North America, certainly, where it's a, it's a big risk. And why is that? Um, and I will put on my sociologist hat because before um, I was I started teaching cooking, I'm trained as a sociologist of science and very interested in how societies work, right? And we have to know that food, when it's made at home, in what one would call the reproductive sphere, you know, mom cooking for the children, typically, that has no value. It does not count. It is not part of the GDP. When we buy food at the grocery store, yeah, that counts towards a gross national product. But the part about doing the cooking, as you and I know, moms are not um, paid for their labor. And there's it, it has no value. It doesn't mean anything in the economy and things that, you know, get counted where food becomes valuable in the economy is when it is um, made by other people, when we start outsourcing it, either we hire a private chef if we have the means, or we eat out at a restaurant, or we buy ready-made processed meals. That counts, and that's called value-added foods. The chain of people that benefit becomes longer because if you buy a potato from the farmer's market, well, the economic chain is, you know, money changes hands a couple times, maybe three, four times in the whole process between somebody buying the seeds, growing the potatoes, selling you the potatoes, and then you make dinner at home. But if you buy a ready-made meal that has potatoes in it, there's a lot of people that made a few pennies, even perhaps a couple bucks on that meal. And that is, in quotes, good for the economy. And what is even worse in that, and just so hard to think about, is that every dollar spent on healthcare, because you've been eating these over-salted, over-fatty potatoes, also counts towards the GDP. And so there's value there. So if people are less sick, well, the economy technically is not doing as well. And this is completely absurd. Um, but it is how we have become... Uh, as as a whole society pushed towards valuing food that's made outside the home and at the same time there's been another phenomenon as a young woman who was you know came of age in the 90s having uh, this idea that i wanted you know having a career was really important for me and somewhere along the line there was the message that cooking doing tasks that are more of the reproductive sphere that are not paid is somehow below me you know, those are activities that somebody else could do that are not valuable, that my time would be better spent because I will be paid, among other things, doing more economically valuable actions, having a high-powered job and, I don't know, creating widgets, being an engineer, all those different things. Right? We celebrate women astronauts and we celebrate women engineers, and I've been a part of that and I continue doing it today, but we don't celebrate you know, moms who cook at home ordinary food <laughs> quite in the same way. But at the end of the day, what makes the biggest difference in the world? I don't know. Is it the astronaut or is it that we have healthy people walking around uh, because they have been nourished with really good food at home that has fostered relationship? And all of those things are kind of the feminine aspects that we've devalued. And in the same way, I think there's a bit of a movement to reclaim pink, for example, right? Like, no, pink is cool because for a long time, pink was not cool. You know, pink is the thing, the girly stuff. And if it's girly, it's not valuable, right? But wait a minute, you know, 
what's wrong with liking pink and we can like pink? Well, I think in the same way, we have to reclaim the importance and value of domestic sphere activities and whether women do it or not. Um, obviously, I would, I would hope that men also get the opportunity to do more of that and to also feel empowered to nourish their families. But we have to realize the gender dynamics that we have internalized, mostly as women, that say, ah, cooking, you know, that's for suckers, right? And that's not true. Cooking is for revolutionaries. Cooking is for, you know, those that have the power to shape the people. Isn't that amazing? Let's claim it. That is amazing. And you have some one-liners that are just to quote for. Cooking is for revolutionaries. Woohoo! Let's do it. <laughs> I need <laughs> a flag. Do. I need a banner. I need a an army of, you know, men with trumpets declaring that we got to do this. We got to do this. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. you say that we only need five recipes. That's rather appealing. What five recipes are they? Since um, saying that to you and writing the book, I've even uh, turned it down to you only need three recipes. <laughs> and uh, on, a, on a really good day, I will tell someone, actually, all you need to know is how to make soup because soup is part of the solution to all the problems of the world that are really worth solving. And so if we start with soup, um, I think anybody can make soup. Sometimes I, I have, I make a soup on a live cooking demo or something and somebody asks me for the recipe and I'm like, well, it's soup. You don't need a recipe. You know, you use what you have, you put them together. I don't know how much cabbage I used or how many beans, you know, I eyeball everything and it, generally turns out okay. Most of the time, even I'd say it turns out good, partly because of that secret ingredient. Remember, love. Um, once you understand the grammar of soup, then you can make an endless number of different soups. And in the same way, once you know how to make a stir fry, you can improvise a stir fry from basic ingredients, again, assuming that you've got a reasonably well-stocked um, set of vegetables in your kitchen and also some basic pantry ingredients. And I don't mean a million fancy spices here or different kinds of oils. Those, those are not bad to have, um, but you don't need them to make tasty food. So soups, stir fries, and by the way, soups, if you add more liquid, it's soup. But if you don't put as much liquid, then you can have something more like a chili or a curry or another kind of simmer dish. Those are my two main ones. And then I'm happy to add uh, roasted things. And there's a bunch of things you can roast. You can roast them more or less all at the same time. And you will have yourself, again, a lovely meal. And also that has the benefit of not being too much hands-on, right? Amongst vegans and plant-based people in general, um, there's a preference and many times for bowls and salads. Bowls are really piles of different ingredients and salads is when you mix all the piles together. <laughs> but again, once you understand the basic building blocks of it, which is always the same thing, some cooked grains, some beans or other form of legumes, lots of vegetables, a little bit of a sprinkle of nuts and some seasonings, you have yourself a bowl or you have yourself a salad if you toss it all together. And finally, in the book, I also talk about simmered grains. I've made that into a recipe, um, but really maybe it's part of the soups and stews section. I'm not quite sure. But things like risottos, paellas, 
uh, are, are dishes where there's a lot of grains that cook together with, again, other kinds of ingredients. And of course, there's traditional ways to do certain things. And I'm of French origins, so I'm very conscious of how certain things have a very specific historic way of making them. And actually, even if you take niçoise salad, for example, in France, if you make niçoise salad the wrong way, you can have like the authorities going against you. Um, I'm, I'm not kidding. Or even like how to make bread is very regulated and things. But when we're cooking at home, we are not trying to get a Michelin star. We are not trying to reenact grand culinary traditions. We're trying to, again, feed ourselves really good food and combine those ingredients that matter the most into simple forms that taste good, right? And so once we understand those structures, we can just combine and recombine meals every which way we want. And of course, like Saturday night, if you have a lot of time to cook, then yeah, go ahead and open, I don't know, Otto Lenghi's cookbook and find something really fancy and learn a new technique. And if you're paying attention, you can learn that technique and play it again in the future. But that's not for everyday cooking. You can't sustain recipe-based cooking every day. That's very few people have the time, patience, and energy to do something like that. And that is or why I really hope people just understand and then do. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I sometimes love recipes. As much as I say I'm not thrilled with cooking these days, I do like reading recipes. It's a little bit like a novel, except the characters are broccoli and cauliflower. But to make a grocery list for a week with the plan of making five or six recipe meals, that list becomes very long, very expensive, and you're ending up with pimentos and cumin seeds that you might not use again for two years. So I, I love what you're saying, that recipes are sort of special occasion things. And if we learn our grammar, then we can get by without them. So let's just back up a little bit. And for your 70-year-old client and everybody else of every age who just has never really become very culinarily savvy, what is the basic grammar of soup? What do you need? You need an onion to start. Okay. and. I always encounter the person who says, my husband's tummy get upset with onion. And I don't have anything to say to that because onions are so good uh, and they're so sweet. And a lot of people don't realize that onions are actually sweet. So I will just park the nightshades and onion problem for a moment. But basically you need a big pot. You need to warm it up on low to medium heat, a little closer to medium, let's say a four out of 10. And you throw in a diced onion and it doesn't need to be diced perfectly. You can do the best you can and it will cook for long enough that even if there's slightly big pieces in there, it won't, it won't be a bother. And I like adding a nice pinch of salt. It doesn't need to be big, but the salt breaks down the wall cell, the cells, the, the walls of the cells of the vegetables. And that makes the water that's inside those cells come out and, um, it, it avoids uh, sticking at the bottom of your pot and that allows you to use less oil if that's important for you because I think many of us are avoiding oil for various reasons we could talk about another time but basically big pinch of salt uh, helps start cooking the onion and as you go then you add some vegetables starting with the thicker denser ones like carrots Again, chop your carrots best you can. No huge pieces unless you have a lot of time to simmer it. Slightly small pieces. Throw in the carrot. If you have other vegetables, I don't know, let's say eggplants. I love to add mushrooms, which are not typically plants, which are not technically plants. I love saying that. I'm plant-based except for mushrooms uh, because mushrooms are fun guy. And so add some pieces of mushrooms and then stir that, you know, once in a while, but not too often because you're trying to help caramelize the vegetables. That means that the sugars that are in the vegetables will become um, noticeable and you will be able to enjoy them because vegetables are sweet. People forget about that. And it's so wonderful when you give them a chance to express their full nature and be a little sweet. Add in um, a liquid to deglaze. That means it will allow you, when the liquid hits the bottom of the pan, it will rapidly evaporate. And in the process, it detaches the sugar pieces that are stuck to the bottom of your pot. So you scrape at the same time 
<laughs> I love doing that. And then your pot is also cleaner, so it will make it easier to wash it after. And then you add a, a better, a bigger quantity of liquid, generally broth. But if all you have is water, that's fine. Add some seasonings, preferably add some legumes to the pot so that you can put a handful of lentils. They will cook at the same time as the rest of the soup. So it's a one pot deal. A can of beans is also perfectly fine. I love using chickpeas in a minestrone kind of soup. Uh, of course, there is lots of kind of Mexican uh, Tex-Mex uh, seasoned soups that you can make using black beans or pintos, things like that. And so you let it all simmer together for maybe 20, 25 minutes. And you don't forget to taste. A lot of people just make the food and they're scared of tasting it. I'm like, no, the beautiful thing about vegan ingredients, you can taste all the time at any moment and you will never endanger yourself with anything like salmonella, right? That's not a thing for vegan food. So you taste it and you see if it's done to your liking. And if those pieces of carrots are still too hard, well, simmer it for a little longer. And there you go, you have soup. And it's oh, nice a... to serve it with uh, cooked grains or even a, a piece of whole grain toast. What a what a wonderful grammar lesson. I love that. So I'm going to ask you another one. When you talk about roasted things, I really think that's something that is missing from my culinary education. I have heard of a lot of people roasting vegetables and a lot of coconut oil, which is not something that I would want to do because of all that saturated fat. Can I still roast things? Of course, of course. I have to say on the, since you mentioned the oil thing, let's just do a little parenthesis on that. I don't use half as much oil as I used to. Um, I use maybe a teaspoon here or there, and I actually make an effort to measure it once in a while because, oh yeah, a teaspoon, you know, and you're glug, glug, glug over things. That's easy. And the, the, the issue with oil, I'm not one who thinks it's it's poison or anything, but it's really a condiment. And a teaspoon of oil goes a long way because those fat molecules just amplify all the flavors in the food in a way that I think you can get used to going without. And actually, you can very much enjoy food that's cooked without oil at all if you only ever eat food like that. So if you only ever eat at home and you're never exposed to oil, then your, your mouth adjusts and you, you start enjoying food without oil. However, if you eat out in restaurants at all, and you don't go on a quest to get the restaurants to remove oil from your food, you know, good luck with that. Um, they don't like that in general. So then your your mouth can find the home food really bland. And so half a teaspoon, a teaspoon of oil makes a huge difference. So roasted things. First of all, of course, the vegetables. And I strongly recommend that everybody who is going to make um a vegan dish always starts with the vegetable. We're used to thinking from omnivorous cooking, start with the protein. And of course, we know that vegetables have protein. But more than that, the reason why people do that is because like, if you have fish in the fridge, it has to be eaten ASAP because it's highly perishable and highly valuable. What is the most valuable food in the vegan kitchen? It's vegetables, fresh vegetables. They need to be eaten right now. ASAP, get on it. And so open your fridge, look at what needs to be eaten today. If you have guests, it's the freshest vegetable. If it's just you, it's the one that's just about to go bad, you know? And so pick the vegetable that needs to go first, chop it roughly, pieces that are about the same size, one inch, something like that. A tiny bit of olive oil, salt and pepper. I love to use turmeric whenever I roast things because um, it's really good for us and it doesn't take a lot. It's a good opportunity to use it. You can throw in some other seasonings as well and put that in the oven. Another thing I will like to roast at the same time will be um, beans. I find that chickpeas are so much better when they're roasted and I throw them in the oven and they, they gain a different texture. I roast them for quite a while, sometimes like half an hour at 375, something like that, even 40 minutes. It, it's very flexible. You can, it's very forgiving vegan cooking. Again, go back to fish. I remember when I was cooking 10 plus years ago, when I was regularly cooking fish, you have a 30 second window between just right and overdone. And then when it's overdone, you've really ruined the whole thing. It's not so with most vegan cooking. If you left things in the oven for an extra five minutes, 
nothing bad will happen the vast majority of the time unless it's on broil. Don't do that. So when you roast the vegetables and the beans together, I guess you could do it also with black beans. I've roasted black beans and different beans, but tofu cubes are a better example here of something you can roast or tempeh. And so you roast those things. And the one thing that I don't roast is um, the whole grains. So whole grains are something that I recommend everybody batches on the weekend, because let's just face it, cooking brown rice on a weeknight, it takes about 40, 45 minutes. It is not going to happen in my household. Quinoa, maybe it's a little bit faster, but most whole grains take a while to cook. But if you make a big batch of them, even just every two weeks, you can freeze them. They thaw perfectly well, no problem. And then, so you serve all the beautiful things you've roasted on top of the grains. And there you go, dinner. Wow. That is stunning. But you know what? There's still the time thing. I was working on my life the other day and decided that it would be good for me to divide up the various aspects of my professional life and just say, okay, I have this concern, this company or whatever you want to call it. And it has 12 departments. So I write and I do the podcast and I'm about to start this TV show on Unchained TV. We're calling it Marvelously Main Street. And I run Main Street Vegan Academy and I'm part of the Compassion Consortium, which for people who are not familiar with that, is a spiritual center, interfaith and interspecies for animal advocates. And there are other things too. So I came up with, I am running 12 departments and I'm one person. And then when you add on to that cooking, and in my case, because I work from home, my husband's home all the time now too. I'm expected or I expect myself to make two meals a day. Where do we find the time? Make this work in the real world. That is the question of the century and perhaps the <laughs> most important of all the questions because it goes back to one thing, how we use our time. And is there a more spiritual question than that? There's lots of answers I could give you and one of my favorites is well you have to take time at you have to decouple cooking and eating I think that's really a, a, an important skill as I was mentioning for example cooking the whole grains that doesn't work for you because you're busy on Sundays with the compassion consortium but the vast majority a lot of people are not so busy on Sunday afternoons it's a good time to take even an hour 90 minutes to just prepare a couple of building blocks that you're going to need in the week. And if you're not cooking by recipes, as we were just saying, if you're not always trying to use these special combinations of ingredients, then on the weekend, you can do some pretty standard things. I call that minimum viable prep. And so you cook some whole grains, you roast some vegetables, you mix up a dressing or two, make a sauce, I don't know. You can do a lot of stuff in 90 minutes if you're focused and not looking at your phone. And in those 90 minutes, you've got some pretty good building blocks and you can tackle the week. And then it will take you probably 15 to 20 minutes, again, if you're focused, to reheat that food, maybe cook a package of pasta to go with that or add some last minute kind of prep to it. That's the easy answer. True answer is that how we use our time and what we put our energy and time towards is really the most important question. And certainly there are people in the world, many of them who don't have a choice how they use their time, their survival, they're facing financial housing and food insecurity depends on them, you know, going to work at one, two, three jobs, and they just have no control over their time. And that's one situation. For the rest of us who are lucky enough and again, the gratitude to have a choice, then it becomes, you know, what is most important for me? And I'm, I've dabbled in the field of productivity. You know, uh, it's a bit of a bro thing, but I, I really love thinking about those questions of how do we use our time? How do we make the most of our time for years? And one of my friends is a productivity coach and he was saying, some clients say to him, you know, I don't like doing a to-do list because it's overwhelming. And he said, well, the problem is not the to-do list. <laughs> it's that you've said yes to all those things, right? And it's just 
saying back to you that you've committed to all those things. And is that really what you wanted to commit to? And if you have a choice, um, is that what's most important for you to do with your time in life? So I think when we think about the importance of really good food, of what our bodies are made of, of what it means to cultivate our health, cultivate love, um, community, that all those things we can do with food, then I think it makes it worth it to say yes to food, even if it might mean that we're going to say no to something else. And in certain circumstances, um, I have this other friend who's a, you know, she's vice president of a really big pension fund. You know, she has a really big, important job. And she often doesn't have time to cook. And she has the financial means to outsource the cooking to someone who can cook to her standards. I'm okay with that because at this time of her life, what's most important for her and what seems the most meaningful is to leverage her skills to do good through that job of hers. And that's great, right? Um, I think most of us don't have infinite money. <laughs> Uh, we and none of us has infinite time so it's all about making wise decisions and we can just lower make food more simple if it just means you're eating soup well soup is awesome so make soup don't create all these expectations of having seven different meals for dinner every night and making things simple means you can still enjoy really good food there's a bit of a compromise on diversity but What's most important to you? It's just a matter of making enlightened choices based on the our true priorities. Your easy answer changed the practicalities of my life and your more profound answer changed some deeper aspects. And I know if it happened that way for me, it happened for listeners. So thank you so very much. This is Brigitte Jem and her book is Flow in the Kitchen. Practices for Healthy, Stress-Free Vegan Cooking. So how cool is that? You can take this remarkable woman home with you in the form of her wonderful book. You can also find out more about Brigitte at her website, veganfamilykitchen.com and on Facebook at Vegan Family Kitchen, Instagram, vegan.family.kitchen. And you don't have to remember all that because we are gonna put it in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.com. So Brigitte, as I let you go back to your wonderful family, what are you going to make for dinner tonight? Beautiful thing is that I don't have to think about it because I made all of those decisions. Um, a few Over the last few years, I created a collection of meal plans for my clients. Um, there's a year's worth of dinner recipes, so that's 260 recipes. I think it's enough. All right. And the irony is that they're all they're, I, they're recipes, but really, I don't even look at the recipes anymore. I just look at the title of the recipe and it's like, oh, it's soup with this, you know, hero ingredient, let's say broccoli, or I don't know. So tonight I will do whatever's on the meal plan. <laughs> I don't know what it is because on the weekend I did the prep. So I know I roasted beets. I know I cooked some farro. I know I roasted yam and I mixed up this rancho sauce. That's a little bit of a Tex-Mex like peppery sauce. And somehow these things are going to come back to me in dinner tonight. I don't, it, it's printed on the meal plan. It tells me what to do and I'm going to do exactly that. Oh, so that's... <laughs> it's easy. Well, and easy is really the name of the game. And whenever I have tried batch cooking, I've done it with recipes. And then by Tuesday night or Wednesday with doing you know, two meals a day, all my batch cooking is done. But to do it the way you're talking about, you do some grains, you do some beans, you do a sauce, you roast some veggies, you've got the week. And then I also loved how you said bowls are mixtures of things and salads are when you mix them together. That is brilliant. So Brigitte, I am thrilled to death that we spoke. I'm going to be in touch with you about some other projects because I would just love for more people in my world to have you in their world. The book, Everybody is Flow in the Kitchen. So do have a look at that. And I want to let you know before we go, a couple of things that are coming up for me and maybe our paths could cross in three glorious dimensions. 
on September 30th and October 1st, coming right up here. We're talking 2023. I will be speaking along with Dr. Joel Furman, Dr. Deborah Shapiro, Dr. Michael Clapper. I mean, all kinds of amazing people, a wonderful uh, dietitian, Brenda Davis, in Dallas for, and this is the name of it, the best plant-based conference ever. And so do check that out. Here's a, a tiny URL, if that makes it easier, tinyurl.com slash best plant-based conference. And maybe I will see you down there in Dallas. And also coming in October is the third annual Vegan Spirituality Conference happening just outside my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri, in the beautiful environs of Unity Village. It's the headquarters of the Unity Movement, lovely spirituality movement that started back in the 1890s, founded by vegetarians. And this year, the conference is going to be called Peace Begins With Me. And you can find out more about that uh, at actually the Compassion Consortium website. I mentioned the consortium. We meet once a month and in between we do book night and film night and all sorts of other wonderful things serving the spiritual needs of animal advocates. And our website is compassionconsortium.org. So what a pleasure to have this time with you. And certainly, Brigitte, you are a food whisperer and you have so many insights into the nature of the people who cook the food too. So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope we can cook together sometime. That would be awesome. Oh, that would be awesome. And you know, now with Zoom and everything, we can cook together without even being together. Life is getting more interesting all the time. Okay, everybody, love your life. Eat your veggies. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Find out more about today's episode at MainStreetVegan.com, where you can also learn how to take your vegan or plant-based outreach to the professional level through Main Street Vegan Academy. And join our inner circle at the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.